For those of you who are new to Advent, part of the, the interesting kind of juxtaposition of Advent, this kind of contrast that's going on, is that we're celebrating the first coming of Jesus. We're also celebrating the second coming of Jesus, which implies sort of consummation and perfection and, you know, God finally having his way. And then, of course, we live in between these times where the kingdom of God is inaugurated in Christ, but it's not yet consummated. And so we live in this sort of tension between these two worlds that for whatever reason, God in his wisdom allows another kingdom to be at work today. Meaning there is a kingdom of evil at work. And all you have to do is, you know, go to your favorite news server, you know, just Google anything or pick up the Santa Ana Register, the LA Times, and you will quickly see within five minutes that there is a counter story running, uh, not just the story that is running from the kingdom of God. And so part of the joy of Advent is that God is calling us and enabling us and gifting us to be his people to help put the world to rights. And there is a certain joy in all that. But uh, right from wrong is not always easily known. And putting the world to rights is not always intuitive, but these passages give us a handle on it. So the background here to the first reading in Zephaniah is that the people of Israel are back in Jerusalem. In that sense, they're out of exile. They're they're not any longer under the thumb of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. They're back in their own land. And in that sense, geographically, they're out of exile. They're, They're sort of back in the homeland. But they're still in exile in terms of what we might call today their personal relationship with God. Are you hearing me? Meaning things weren't going so well sort of relationally, you might say, between God and his plan and what he's up to in the world and what the people were experiencing in their own spirituality with reference to their God. There was lots of social injustice. There was lots of oppression of the poor for private gain. 
Uh, the people were interacting with lots of other gods. There was witchcraft, temple prostitution, both male and female was rampant. So there wasn't a lot of sort of good vibes, you might say, going on between the people and God, though they were physically back. And what Zephaniah is telling us in this passage is that there's coming a day, there's coming an advent in which the Messiah will come. And when he comes, God will be present among you and he'll be mighty to save. And you need to hear this again, that when the people heard he'll be mighty to save, they didn't think, oh, good, I get to go to heaven when I die. It included that and it does include that. But everybody knew that salvation had emphasis in this life, not merely the life to come. It includes the life to come. The mistake in most of our lives and in most of the evangelical churches that most of us grew up in is to reduce what God is doing to the life to come. The proper way to think about it is that what God is up to includes the life to come, but it can't be reduced to that. And so when these people heard a word like save, they knew that it meant things like God is going to take away our punishment. Think of the reading. And that, and that not only that, he's going to take great delight in us. He's going to quiet us or calm us with his love. He's going to rejoice over us. That is to say, he's going to delight in you with singing. And all the accumulated sorrows of your exile will be gone. Now, you know what that's all about? I mean, this is really hard to fathom, but I fathom this. special ways. And so Jesus says, when the Messiah comes, that I'm going to heal all those sorrows and I'm going to give you honor and praise among the people again. Something that when I was reading the readings this week, I don't know how many of you are following the readings in like that little blue prayer book, which by the way, there's more of those this week or the the church calendars we gave away last week. There's more out there. uh, So I know some of you didn't get one. So if you're following the readings, maybe you're reading this, but when I hear this, I'll give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth. It makes me think uh, we need to hang on to that because I can just almost guarantee you that in our lifetime, the reputation of Christianity has not only gone down a lot, but is likely to go down more before it goes up. And we need to hang on to these kinds of promises. And in fact, when we get to the Philippians passage, the Philippians passage is all written against the backdrop of really rampant persecution. So in Zephaniah, you've got the backdrop of exile. In Philippians, you've got the backdrop of lots of persecution happening to the church in Philippi. And so when Paul says to them, rejoice, that word rejoice doesn't simply mean like be happy. Against the, it's often used in the New Testament, almost exclusively used in the New Testament, against the backdrop of suffering and persecutions. So it means something more like be at peace with. Or when Jesus, or when Susan, when, when the prophet said of God in Zephaniah, I'll calm you, it means something like be at peace, be calm, celebrate God in your life. And out of that celebrating, you can then let your gentleness be evident to all. Because you get a picture, what's happening here is if the Canadians suddenly did take over America, and... Uh,
God and that in that kingdom, we are always safe. So gentle here in this context then means non-retaliation to persecutors. In, in Paul's day in Philippians, it's, it's kind of an a interesting story. There were, there were these group of people who just really believed in partying. That fundamentally what it meant to be human was to just party as hard as you could and eat as much as you could and drink as much as you could and just indulge yourself in all of your senses as much as you possibly can. And these people hated Christians simply because Christians wouldn't go along with them. And again, so you had this major cultural divide and Paul's saying in that situation, there is possibility for kindness, for gentleness, knowing that the Lord is near. And knowing that the Lord is near, that we celebrate an advent in which he is present with us, then Paul says, you don't have to be anxious about anything. But instead, just present your request to God. Don't fret about stuff. Instead of worrying, just pray. That there's something fundamental to being Christian about an ongoing conversational relationship with God. That, that you, know, you know the old saying that nobody cares about praying, nobody cares about you talking to God. But as soon as you say you're hearing back from him, you're likely to say you need a therapist, right? Are you with me here? But actually normative to Christianity for all the ages has been an ongoing conversational relationship with God. And then through that, Paul says, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so when our earliest forebears, whether it's the Jews hearing Zephaniah, or these early Jewish Christians hearing Paul, when they thought Advent, they thought this life. They thought something's happening through the presence of God and through the presence of his Messiah that changes this life. It begins to set the world to rights. And this is what we're going to get to in a minute in this passage uh, in John, or excuse me, where John the Baptist is talking in Luke. But when you think of setting the world to rights, don't just think that God is going to fix the Taliban hiding in Pakistan and he's going to heal their wounded hearts. Don't just think that God is going to fix economic injustice or social injustice or that God is going to cause there to be no more sickness. All that stuff is going to happen. But when you think of God putting the world to rights, your heart is part of that world. Your mind, my mind, is part of that world. And God is renewing it and helping it and changing it and, and causing it to be able to be gentle and kind and non-anxious and a, just to be a non-anxious presence and whatever might be happening in your life and that that itself then becomes an agent of healing in culture where you have a non-anxious principal of a junior high school who, rather than manipulating all the teachers, exists for their good and for their growth and their advancement professionally and, and whatever. They, they exist for the good of the children rather than existing for how I might look to the district or whatever. You can just go on and on. Think engineers. Think accountants. Think about every major financial scandal you've known. How might they have been different if the CPAs watching over that company had been asking themselves, how do I do this in Advent? How do I do this with an Advent spirit, knowing that I do my work as a CPA 
in a time in which God is present and God is working and God is putting the world to rights. You see, this is why, again, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, Christian spirituality means nothing if it's not concrete and precise and situated. If it's just sort of out there somewhere after, after you die or out there somewhere in the heavens, wherever God might be, it is never the Christianity that Advent hopes for and expects. The Christian spirituality that Advent expects and hopes for and sort of prophesies is a time in which God is present among his people. And he's interacting with his people and setting the world to rights, beginning with their own hearts. So this is what's happening again in John the Baptist. This is not the kind of baptism you might think of the way we will do baptisms in church. This is something different. This is what, what's happening here. The background here is that the people, again, they're back in their land. So that since they're out of exile. But now they're in slavery to Rome. And the people themselves were far from God and stuck. No one knew what to do. There are lots of ideas about how, it, how we should get unstuck. Some people thought we should fight Rome. Other people thought, no, we should just sort of politically get, in, you know, get along with Rome. There were all kinds of ideas about how to get unstuck with reference to their God, but they were stuck. There was political turmoil. Uh, personal morals were uh, bad and not going well. And so when these people come to the river, the reason you hear John saying these pretty harsh words is that John is saying, look, baptism can't be a ritual that hides your real self. Because one of the big things of God putting the world to rights is God putting our hearts to right. And this week, as I was reading this passage and thinking about it, I suddenly had a thought that it wasn't a new thought, but it just seemed clearer and brighter in my mind, that Eucharist cannot be a ritual that hides your real self. I've only met a few, but I have met a few people in the two or three months we've been doing this who've said to me, you know, I grew up Catholic or I grew up Episcopalian or whatever, and, uh, you know, I got saved at Calvary or Vineyard or Saddleback or whatever, and, uh, you know, I, I just don't get this. This just seems like going back to me. I just, I, 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 I can't get it. And I always say, well, good Lord, go somewhere where you can grow spiritually. Then, you know, this, you don't need to be here. But when I, when I just unpack that a little bit, here's what I always find. I went to a church in which the priest, whoever, I'm not picking on anybody, didn't really know God, wasn't really taking it serious, was just sort of rote. Um, I didn't want to be in church, but my parents made me go. My parents used to fight all the time. My dad had a couple of affairs. But boy, we had to go to mass every week or whatever. And, and so the priest wasn't into it. My parents were hypocrites. They made me go to church. And this just starts making those old tapes play. Why? Because even the beauty of Eucharist and readings and prayers and all that, if it's merely a ritual that, that we're not using as a tool to engage in the work of God's people as sort of a spiritual discipline to engage in this stuff, then we could fall into the same sort of trap that John the Baptist was talking about. So for him, he's saying the big deal here is that this baptism can't just be a ritual. That it's an antidote of sorts. That getting wet in the Jordan River was a sign of returning to God with all of your heart and all of your soul. For these ancient Jews who were coming down to the Jordan to be baptized by John, they were actually saying aloud, for all to hear, I repent. It was anything but a ritual in its intention. It was meant to be saying, I repent, which means I'm changing my thinking. 
And I'm understanding that life now can be, empowered by the Holy Spirit, completely different because of Advent. But John sees that some of them are hypocritical, and I love the way Peterson gets this in the message. He says, you brood of snakes, what do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snake snake skins is going to deflect God's judgment? And so he's pointing out their hypocrisy and says to them, no, what you really need to do is produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Again, the message, it says, it's your life that must change, not your skin. So John's saying getting your skin wet doesn't mean anything. And it's possible to dip a little cracker in a cup of wine and for it to not mean anything unless one's heart is to actually participate and be nourished by the life of Christ so that we go out of here existing with the life of Christ in us for the sake of others. So John's just pointing out the obvious. It's the internal that mattered, not just appearances. That what God was doing in this baptism in the river was a renewal of the covenant with Israel and their lives. And so when John says to them again, you know, well, don't say, don't, don't then use an excuse that, well, I have Abraham as my father. Because what John is saying is, look, covenant lip service will not do. Only covenant practices through repentance and life change is what will do. And so this whole business, did you catch that in your readings? Or you, you can look at it if you want. This whole business of the axe already being at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, this is John just being sort of prophetically pragmatic. Orchards had trees, right? And trees were intended to bear apricots or figs. And if you had a tree that was not producing figs, you cut it down. And you planted a new one in its place that would do what you as the owner of the orchard legitimately expected would happen, that these trees would bear fruit. And John is saying to these sort of curious, but politically and relationally and religiously mixed up Jews coming down to the river, that look, this is not about some new Jewish ritual. This isn't sort of circumcision plus getting wet. There's something more going on here than just a ritual, and it has to do with the kind of life change that produces the kind of life that God expects and intends for his people. So we might say something like this, infant baptism plus catechism plus confirmation plus first communion only counts, John would say, if involved in that is serious repentance. And again, that doesn't mean beating yourself up. Like, did you ever see the Martin... uh, a Luther movie, you know, where he wore, you know, uh, um, animal coats inside out so that the, the animal hair would scratch him and make him itch and he would beat himself. Have you ever seen any of that stuff? This is what Luther thought it meant to be spiritual. And uh, at first. And, and what John would say is, no, none of that stuff counts. What counts is repentance. And repentance doesn't mean beating yourself up. It means just a fundamental change of worldview. To use a word from the 80s, a paradigm shift. How about that? It means to just sort of shift your thinking uh, about your, you know, your whole view of the world and what God's up to. So for these people coming down to the river, what, what John wanted them to know is that this is a commitment to be God's people. To be the light of the world and the salt of the earth for the sake of others. And so he says, look, what really counts here is your life, not your heritage. And so I love the way Peterson gets it in the message. He says, well, what about your life? Is it green and blossoming? Because if it's dead wood, it goes into the fire. 
And I think the thing that, uh, that we, uh, one of the things that I learned in this text and that I've, I've heard several people in this new congregation say to me, uh, you know, Todd, the one thing I love about what we're doing is that for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm developing some appropriate sort of reverence and awe for God. That I feel like I've sort of grown past the 1970s, you know, I can wear jeans to church and, you know, sing Jesus is my girlfriend kind of songs. And I feel like that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm learning some appropriate reverence and awe that's really sort of rewiring my inner life. And of course, I, I love that. It's great. Because what this text teaches us is that though all those Advent promises from Zephaniah are true, though it's possible, though, though because of that it's possible to live the kind of life that Paul's talking about in Philippians, that doesn't mean that our God is tame. He's not tame. And his presence always Advent always brings judgment and deliverance and blessing. It's just that judgment in God is not merely punitive. It's setting the world to rights. See, if you're a woman and you don't like men taking advantage of you, let's say sexually, when God brings his judgment and his perfect will and men cannot do that, will that be a good thing for you ladies or a bad thing? When God finally brings his judgment and sexual, human sexuality is put in its rightful place, that's an untamed God doing that. And it requires somebody who stands outside of space and time to do that, to come into space and time in the renewed heaven and the renewed earth and say, this is the way it's going to be. This is human sexuality as I intended it. Guys, can you picture a time in which bosses wouldn't manipulate you? You wouldn't go to work fear-based. You wouldn't go to work for somebody who's, who's a thief, a conniver, a manipulator. You know, any means for any bottom line. Well, it takes an untamed God to do that. Judgment is the goodness of God being expressed. It's just that if you're on one side of the table, you experience that as his goodness. If you're on the other side of the table and you're a user of the opposite sex or a user of human beings at work, well, then you're going to find God's judgment a little, you know, untame because it is going to happen. And so then the crowd, and I'm going to be done here, the crowd then asks what I, what I would like to say is the perfect lectionary question. And this is the way you ought to hear every lectionary reading for the rest of your lives. If you don't know what lectionary means, it just means those three readings we read every week. And this is the way we ought to read them every week. With this question, the people came to John and said what? What should we do? Not first, what should we believe? Like if we go away saying we believe that John said these words, does that make us in? Not even what should we understand about what you've said, though that would be better. But no, they asked the perfect lectionary question, what should we do? Have you ever seen the cartoon? It was, it was, it's been around a lot. The cartoon where the skeptic is shouting up to the heavens, you say, saying, God, if you're really up there, what should we do? And the voice answers back, feed the hungry, house the homeless, establish justice. And the skeptic, looking alarmed, looks up and goes, just testing. <laughs> and the voice says back, me too. The question is always, what should we do? And, and if you look at what Paul says, 
the, the whole Advent joy thing is about joining with God to put the world to rights. And it has nothing to do with legalism. It has nothing to do with earning God's favor. It's just that God is asking his people and giving, him the, giving them the power and the ability to partner with him in putting the world to rights. That's one of the great joys of Advent in the presence of Christ amongst his people is that we then become his cooperative friends. And he basically says to them, share, be generous, give. So to the tax collectors, he says, here's what it means to you to rethink all your life. For you, it means no more extortion. Be fair. Follow the law. Quit cheating others. To the soldiers, who, by the way, these soldiers were not Roman soldiers. They were soldiers of the temple. They were Herod's soldiers. So they were, you know, like religious soldiers. And he says to the soldiers, be content with what you have. Meaning, as far as we can tell, what was happening here is that nobody had heard of cost of living raises at this point in history. You know what I mean? There weren't inflationary indexes in the Wall Street Journal. And so these people over, you know, generations, it felt like, you know, we're really not keeping up with the times here. And so they were using low pay as an excuse for getting more for themselves by robbing others. It was basically Jewish on Jewish thuggery. And Jewish on Jewish abusing their position, shaking down others, or blackmailing them. And John says to them, look, look, these are just two simple practices. But what they are is they're evidences of repentance. See, you don't steal...
in the Nicene Creed. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.